Welcome to The Chain, the podcast exploring the lives, careers, research, and discoveries of protein engineers, scientists, and biotech professionals. We look at the impact their work is having on the field and where the industry is headed. On today's special episode, we bring you a live panel discussion recorded at PEGS Boston in May. The conversation is moderated by Jonah Rainey, Senior Director of Protein Engineering at Eli Lilly. He's joined by Stephen Demarest, CSO of Tenteryx Biotherapeutics, Michelle Morrow from F-Star Therapeutics, and Dario Neri from Phylogen. The topic of the panel is listed as wondering who wrote this. No, it was me, but uh, uh, setting the right strategy to drive engineering parameters for solid tumor targeting T-cell engagers. Um, so it's very specific. We can go a bit broader than that, I think. Um, I think, you know, it's interesting to think about engineering parameters. And certainly we heard uh, a lot from Steve's talk about ways to um, create a lot of like library-based diversity of distances and domain orders and things like that. Uh, in order to find the right engineering, uh, well, in order to take the engineering parameters and find the right solution out of it. Um, uh, and then we also had aspects from the other two talks about creating a variety of formats and then finding some that had the special properties that we were looking for. Um, so uh, really, I think we can um, also expand this uh, to include um, what we need to do in the solid tumor microenvironment to uh, to drug it, uh, you know. So we have uh, T cell engagers that would engage CD3, for instance, that will send a nice, robust signal. One, um, we can get away with that in the being being the only way to turn on the T cells in in the periphery. Um, but in solid tumors, uh, there's you know quite a bit of immunosuppression. Um, I think we've seen over the last couple of days. Uh, as, as well as some of the talks today, augmenting with signal two, um, and then also augmenting with signal three with cytokine support. Um, you know, those can be independent modalities, but those can also be cooperative modalities. Um, and uh, then there's the inhibition of the co-inhibition pathways as well that I think kind of all come together. Um, so we can talk about some of the engineering strategies. We can also talk about uh, some of the... Uh, um, you know, how we, how we might use some of these targets together, what the pluses and minuses are. So with that intro, uh, let's go ahead and get started. Um, does anyone want to set the stage with a first question from the audience? All right, we've got one. Uh, you can go to that mic right there. And if we wind up with a lot of people, I'll run around with the microphone. But Okay. Thank you very much for this panel uh, discussion section. I'll find the first question then. Um, when we talk about the solid tumor T-cell engager, people always talk about the penetration of the molecule into the, into the kind of tissue area. But the trouble is because more antibody as a big molecule, they have kind of, they are very poor to penetrate on certain membrane, for example. They can never go through the cell surface membrane, apparently, but uh, of course the tumor environment probably have another invisible kind of barrier for the, for the antibody to go through. So I wonder whether there's any kind of fundamental difficulty for the antibody to do the kind of uh, 
engager for uh, cure sonic tumor. Uh, how do you think about that? Thank you. Great, and maybe I can summarize. Uh, how much does size impact the ability to, to use whatever size drugs we're talking about? Um, Steve, do you want to start us off? It's something that you started talking about, that these smaller modules might give you better tumor flux, um, but then the lead that you described at the end was FC-associated and had fab arms on it. So right. um, what's, what was your thinking around that? So, you know, I think this goes back to a long time ago. Um, there's been a lot that's been published on tumor uh, infiltration of biologics. The, uh, you know, we even did some studies, you know, I think tw almost 20 years ago when I was in Werner's group at, at Biogen looking at biodistribution and accumulation in tumors. And if you have a good half-life, uh, ultimately you can penetrate the tumor. So I, I think when we did some uh, some you know, labeling, some uh, radio labeling of, of some of the biospecifics that we were looking at for tumor penetration at the time. Um, even the bigger ones could get in, so I think antibodies would start to suffuse within into the tumors within about two to three days. You would see a maximal peak. You know, they have better PK. Um, larger molecules would get there in about four days, uh, so it takes time to accumulate. With the, in T-cell engagers, you don't need it a lot. You know, the agonistic curve compared to binding, uh, you know, you get agonism long before you saturate. So um, you don't need a ton. Um, now, the size is definitely it plays a role in the ability to introduce, you know, I get good T-cell engagement. So, so much has been talked about from a membrane proximal epitopes that, you know, that are amenable for, you know, all the different sizes of biospecifics. Um, you know, just a couple of years ago, we, or a year ago, we published a paper on T-cell receptor engagers, and we found that the space was extremely limited because the epitope of MHC class one is always in one condition, and we could almost, we could find very, very few biospecific formats that could enable, you know, good activation and we had to go with what was fairly a small, small version, you know, similar to I think what the intacts have. And so, um, you know, I think you can get there as long as you have PK, uh, reasonable PK with these larger molecules. Um, hope line wasn't too long-winded, but to hear what everybody else says. I think you asked a very important question, and I think it's an area where we probably need more research. There is a fairly rich amount of data in mice. There is not a lot of data in humans, but I would like to summarize a few facts. First of all, if you have an antibody product that reaches a tumor to organ ratio of say 10 to one, 24 hours, that's as good as it gets in humans, to give a few numbers. Secondly, if you start looking microscopically where the product goes, most of it will be on perivascular tumor cells, which means the little antibody that goes out of blood vessels, finds the antigen, binds, and stays there. These, I, I think, are very hard data. The things that we don't know very well is what happens later. You can see, for example, models where you peel the onion, you know, you start killing layers of tumor cells around the vasculature. 
you will see models where the vasculature collapses. And there may be models where it's the, the T cells, for example, that travel all the way to the interior of the tumor. So I think we know a few facts, but in my opinion, they are not fully integrated in a therapeutic concept. You want to add anything? Can, can I add to the discussion? <laughs> of course. Um, so I, I think the other thing you have to look at is, is real-world data in the clinic. So Amgen's now got two very promising-looking T-cell engagers, one, you know, DLL3. That's a half-life extended bite, right? So that's a very large molecule mm -hmm. looking super promising in small cell lung cancer. Uh, and also Amgen 509, mm -hmm. which actually uses Zencore's 2 plus 1 format. So that's a, what, 200 kilodalton? Uh, format um, that's looking extremely promising in, in prostate cancer. Um, and then I'll add another thought I had while thinking about this is one of the things I really like about the CD28 bicyclic approach is you, you don't even worry about that much about heterogeneity because all you need to do is get some of those T cells expanding and the T cells are actually the drug, right? The drug is just there to excite them, expand them, now the T cells can do the job of crawling around and inside the tumor. Yeah, because we know that cells are big and cells can get in. Um, so uh, they're, they're good at crawling, exactly. Yeah, and they can pull things with them too. Sorry, Eric, this is the second time that they have them. Yeah, I know. No, I was just going to make the comment further back. Yeah, so one of the things I was going to say is that, yeah, just in furtherance of that, we don't know, you know, we always get asked whether or not, you know, our, our bi-specific T-cell engagers are engaging with the target cursor really being sort of carried in by the by the uh, the T-cells, right? And and certainly with super low affinity CD3s, it might, might be presumed that you actually are engaging with the target, with the cell. But some, most of our, our CD3 bi-specifics have some measurable affinity to CD3, and you can find them on the surface of, of T-cells to some extent, and as was pointed out. T-cells are actually okay at getting into tissues and doing the, sort of their normal job of tissue surveillance in that. In that setting, you can imagine them sort of carrying some of this drug in there with you. And as, and as we all know, it doesn't take a whole lot of the T-cell engagers themselves to give that signal one uh, for, through the CD3 bi-specifics. They really do. You don't need to have them completely saturated to get that level of engagement, right? So, and just to sort of follow up with John, is that we've also, we have a MUC-16 by CD3 bi-specific as well that, you know, is showing, you know, some efficacy uh, in the clinic as well as a solid tumor uh, bi-specific in, in the ovarian setting. Um, maybe not as good as sort of the heme tumors, but we certainly have an active compound. You know, now, again, there's a long way to go with that drug to get to where we want to be, right? So the initial efficacy that we reported is not, you know, not home run levels, but it's certainly promising and means that we can get activity in these types of settings with solid tumors. We just need to really be maybe focused on how to enhance that. Uh, and that's why I think that some of these other strategies, uh, you know, either, you know, by themselves or, or most likely in combination uh, might be where the field ends up going. Eric, while you have the mic in your hand, um, can you can you follow up on the idea of the spacing um, that well, you generate? Because of course, your format has normal antibody-based spacing, which is not yeah, optimal for greatest potency. But that that no, that that seems to be correct. And certainly, we've done a lot of experimentations around the the spacing and the geometry. And certainly, 
you know, we can get activity with antibody. We're not the only, you know, there are, there are many people who've observed that antibody or antibody-like CD3 T-cell engagers can, can be functional. Now, certainly in our hands, some of the bite molecules might actually have better, you know, on a per-molecule basis activity, but we don't see differences in maximal kill. Usually in our hands, we just, if you dose a little bit more with an antibody-like format, you can get to the same point. Uh, to the point on the, the T-cell engagers, so I've talked a little bit about the work, uh, not at this meeting, but at previous meetings that we're doing in that space as well at Regeneron. And, and we actually did find that our antibody, our normal one-to-one -one format was not active uh, in that setting. And I think that a lot of it is due to the geometry of that. When you have those T-cell-like MHC engagers, they all do sort of bind like a TCR, but that means it has a very fixed spacing in, in geometry. And in our hands, we actually went a little bigger. What we did, what we found is that we engineered things a little bit bigger, unlike the immunocore molecule, which was sort of more bite-like. Um, and we were able to, again, by going another way, we also sort of ended up at the same point. Um, but, you know, it's, uh, again, a much more complicated molecule than we were normally used to dealing with and we're still sort of we're still tinkering with that platform to be honest <laughs> to try to really optimize it um but uh i think again it, it does sort of goes to show that there are multiple solutions but you have to be the geometry actually really is important it's something that we haven't necessarily up until this point really thought a whole lot about um other than okay we want membrane proximal targets for I mean, I think that again that was pretty it's getting to be pretty well understood in the field on that side but so how you engage in cd3 is also also, they're clearly really important. So, kind of on the same uh, on the same topic, let me ask the panel another question. Um, so, something that I've I've heard come up in questions recently um, over the last couple of days is uh, how could a T cell engager work in a cold tumor if there are no T cells to engage? Um, so, uh, whoever wants to start, go ahead. Start. Yeah. So I think, um, I mean, cold tumors obviously is a kind of major challenge. I think that some of this will come out of combination therapy. So um, I think using appropriate combinations, chemotherapy, for example, you know, if you can elicit tumor cell death and then think about how that might increase your infiltration and also how you might sequence that. I think that could be an approach to take. Because um, really, you need to just disrupt that microenvironment to make something happen, right? So, and that's not an engineering consideration. That's more of a clinical, um, but bio biological strategy. But I, I think we could be doing a lot more to try and really understand how to make that environment more more permissive. Um, so that that's a kind of thought, um, and I think that's that's the way a lot of a lot of the IO space is. is it's gone, you know, it's used routinely in combination with chemotherapy for that for that perspective. So that's just one thing to think about. And and then how do you find the right combination and partner and how, how do you move that forward? And without killing the T cells as well. But it's, it's certainly a challenge, like bringing, a, bringing T cells in. And I guess the other thing is to keep the ones you've got in there, there and, and also expand what you've already got as well, looking for that proliferative phenotype. Professor, if I may add on this topic, which I think is very important, there is the issue of how do you study it? Because if you go back to models, it would be very important either to do it in the fully syngenic uh, immunocompetent mouse setting, but then you need good mouse antigens and good mouse reagents, or if you go with CD3 transgenics, 
you may still cheat by putting human antigens on tumor cells and those tumors may be more immunogenic. So I think this is a topic which probably with the right transgenic models can be studied better than the usual, the average publication, in my opinion. The challenge is, though, with those models is they still don't fully recapitulate what you might see in a cold tumor in patients as well. Right? Fully I mean, agreed, but the, the, the question is, you know, models are, have a lot of limitations, but also taking a mouse and treating it like an epidorf tube because you fill it with, uh, you know, with human T-cells. I, I, I don't know, my feeling is there is a value in working in the immunocompetence in genic setting. I, I can completely agree, and I think what's important is how you interpret that and you're clear about the hypothesis you're testing. Yeah. And, and you ask a, sign, a mechanistic question of your model and you don't just assume that because the tumor shrinks, that will translate, but you're actually proving the mechanism. And actually, that's quite important for, for all this, this discussion, actually, that you're ready when you get to clinic to understand what good looks like quickly, as quickly as you can, before you burn through you know, your whole company's budget on um, you know, patient expansion cohorts and so on. If you can make a very quick assessment to say, is that mechanism playing out? Are we getting infiltration? It can be challenging, right? Because getting paired biopsies is not straightforward. Um, maybe it's with skin cancer. Uh, there's a major advantage there. Um, but I think it's important to know what success looks like and be able to measure that as well. Joan, if I get to be too much of a pain, you can just tell me to leave the room yeah. or sit in the back. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess, I, I guess a, a follow-up question would be, when you say cold tumor, there's sort of, there's like the IHC definition, but then there's the working definition, which, which we usually use is that checkpoints don't work. Um, so I, I think it is promising, for instance, we're seeing real activity now in prostate cancer with, with CD3s and CD28s. Uh, checkpoints barely move the needle in prostate cancer. Um, I think colorectal cancer is another example of a cold tumor where I think that the issues there, like with the Roche program, the CEA, CD3, is, is more therapeutic index uh, than actually getting the T cells to do something. Um, so just, just a few thoughts there. And I, at some point, I have a question to stimulate There's a difference, some, some right, dialogue. as well, between a cold tumor and an iridium-suppressive tumor, like when you're thinking about cell, t- cell types in there that you know, your T cells are just they're there, but they're just dysfunctional because you might have a myelosuppressive right. environment, et cetera. Lot of stromal. Yeah, so it's, it's not just one size fits all. I completely agree. Yeah. So, one question related to that also. So, chemo, there's a lot of debate about whether it's immunogenic cell death and how it heats up tumors. Um, but there's also been a lot of uptick and success in ADCs, right? And so, if you think of ADCs mm-hmm. as basically targeted chemo, you know, it's interesting the way companies are organized. You know, you have ADC companies and you have bi-specific companies, but there's not a lot of stuff going on in between. And I'm wondering if anybody's aware of companies that are actually trying to combine an ADC, you know, with either a COSTEM or a, or a CD3 to, you know, kind of get that targeted chemo effect and seeing if there's any synergies there. It's a good idea. It's certainly a great approach that I think we'll see is, yeah. (laughs) Seems like a good idea. Yeah, it does seem like a good idea, doesn't it? Somebody should really do that. Again, I I agree with you. There is a lot of synergy 
what is in common, and I don't think is much appreciated, when you look at ADCs, also ADCs usually they only localize around the tumor blood vessels, and they work. And to me, the implication is, at least with ADCs, sometimes you just need to peel the onion or you need to disrupt the vascular integrity, and then you get an avalanche of tumor cell death. So probably you are thinking of combination, but I'm looking more also at similarities of targeting and probably also similarity in asking a basic question, how does a tumor die? Because it sounds like a dull question, but it's, a, in my opinion, a very important one. I wonder if there's a way to smash the onion instead of peeling away the onion. Um, you know, every now and then I hear somebody saying that... Uh, that targeted, um, you know, X-ray therapy or um, radioimmunoconjugates uh, can really do a good job of just getting nearby, particularly with radioimmunoconjugates. You don't need to have internalization. Um, you can kind of choose the isotope so that you get the right distance of penetration, and you can maybe not have to go one peel at a time there, uh, really create some disruption, create some very immunogenic cell death. Any, any thoughts about that, about potential future of uh, ha having a little bit more radiological intervention. Radio therapy and targeted yeah. radiotherapy works very well to change, change the tumor microenvironment. Yeah. Um, yeah, but, um, I, I think sometimes these things are because they're like, clinically challenging, more challenging to do. It's more challenging to run. You know, you've got to have radiation oncologists and not all companies are set up in a way where they can do that. I think, there's some, I think this is where a lot of the academic centers have got it right in terms of how they... But there is one case study which I think is well established, which is PSMA. If you look at PSMA, there is a product on the market, which is Pluvicto. The same company, Endocyte, ran the small molecule drug conjugate against the radionuclide conjugate, and the radionuclide won. And to my knowledge, there are three ADC programs targeting PSMA, which have not been terribly successful, and now there are the bi-specifics. So I think this is a perfect playground for comparing technologies. Interesting thought. Uh, to answer the last question, I think there's a talk later today um, by a representative of CGEN who's going to cover uh, immunostimulatory antibody drug conjugates, so they target the TLR7-8 to help um, increase T-cell activation and turn cold tumors hot. Thanks for that contribution. Yeah. All right. So if we're if, if we're good on this topic, let's let John. Uh... Yeah. So I, I wanted to raise this question. I was talking to Peter about it earlier. Um, I've seen several talks at this conference and other conferences. A lot of people working really hard to to pull apart uh, cytotoxicity from cytokine release, and. I just can't help wondering, are, are you potentially leaving something on the table if you get rid of all the cytokine release? So that, that, that's sort of, I wanted to stimulate some discussion around that. Because yeah. there must be some good stuff happening in the TME when you secrete cytokines, interferon gamma, TNF, alpha, so forth. Yeah, this is something I know a lot of people have some opinions about, about whether we've... Uh, when it comes to treating solid tumors, have, have we learned too much from treating liquid tumors? And maybe are, the, are those maybe not the rules to go by in treating solid tumors? Or we may be worried too much about cytokine release and not worried enough about it working at all. Um, so 
that's that's kind of my intro two cents on it. I have a lot more I could say, but let's let's let the panelists chime in on their thoughts and anyone else after that who wants to. <laughs> yeah. No, I I agree with that too. Looking at preclinical models. Like, what does agree mean? I agree that that totally eliminating cytokine release is not necessarily the best thing. I think if you have intrinsic cytokine release because you're too high affinity for CD3 and you're agonizing, even in a monovalent format, that's not good for solid tumors. But if it, there's a requirement for engagement to TAA and it's very specific to the environment that you're in and you get a local effect, that may not be a bad thing as you're suggesting. Um, you know, originally, I think we... The, you know, we looked at, you know, molecules where yeah, I think that's where you just have to figure out what is your therapeutic index. And if you can get the therapeutic index by going kind of low affinity, but not in solid tumors worried too much about cytokine release, that might be part of your efficacy package if you can localize it to some extent. I haven't gone to the clinic with any of the ones. I've only have data in mice. So uh, I think you would have a lot more to say on that. I think it all depends on what your targeting to, right, and how specific that is uh, and where those cells are. And it's often difficult to pinpoint. I think you touched on this in your talk about, you know, the tissue. We often think about the cells being what's in the blood, but we forget that 90% of T cells are actually in tissue. So um, I think it's understanding where, where that's happening and, and, and understanding the target expression of your TAA is absolutely key. And it will be different for different molecules. I'm probably different formats. So unfortunately, it's probably not one answer. I think it probably depends yeah. and it's understanding the risk profile of your molecule and again having ways to test that sooner so how good are your preclinical models how good are your safety models so you can make early decisions if it's not working to try something else before you know you get to patients and then you realize you've got therapeutic window this wide so i think you're completely agree it's about where understanding where the cells are is really important yeah do you want to chime in Daria, it's been, been covered already. So Nathan, did you want to say more than you agree? I'll give you the mic if you want. And then I can see Eric has some stuff to say too. You might cover it. <laughs> I guess a way to rephrase what you had said earlier, John, was, you know, a liquid tumor is just a very different disease than a solid tumor. And when, when you look at what works with liquid tumors, you know, signal one alone works well to kill. And so the mechanism of killing and just efficacy could be very different. And so when you optimize to that and then just start swapping in solid tumor antigens, you, you know, you've over-optimized to what works in a liquid environment, but that likely isn't what's going to work well in a solid tumor environment where you need, you need more than signal one and um, just the mechanism's probably fundamentally different. Yeah, I was, I was going to sort of follow up on that as well. One is that I was going to agree that in the liquid tumor environment, at least the signal one bispecific has been very potent, but they may not be as signal one dependent entirely as we see because a lot of these liquid tumor targets actually do have the co-stimulatory ligands sort of on them. And so we might be getting, you know, cryptic co-stimulation from those types of targets. I, I don't, we have looked at that a little, like, but there's never been a little study as to just how critical those are and like whether or not we're seeing like escape, you know, people who, you know, relapse from some of these CD3 bispecifics are doing so because they lose maybe co-stimulatory ligands rather than the primary target. Most of the cases, reported cases of relapse have been sort of through that primary CD3 target, but maybe there's a contribution there that's clinically more important than we might know. Um, but the other thing I wanted to say is with regards to the cytokine release is that, at least again with the, specifically about the CD3 bispecifics, is that that is mostly an acute toxicity that we see. 
right? Uh, clinically, we see the CRS only and usually in the first few weeks uh, of those programs. And most, most companies that have been doing this have developed some form of, of amelioration strategy, be it, you know, this sort of step-up dosing or through sort of pretreatment or steroids or something to sort of get through that initial toxicity. And after you get through that initial toxicity, you can dose those reagents more or less continuously at, at pretty high levels, um, which if you gave them sort of straight would, would cause an initial, you know, uh, really probably a fatal acute toxicity, but you can dose at super high levels for a very long time without seeing cytokine release. So what the role of those cytokines are where we're not seeing those systemic cytokine releases, but we are still seeing efficacy with these programs, I think that it's not still, at least by me, fully understood what that, what that really the implications are for what the mechanism is for how we're engaging T cells, you know, after the first couple of weeks. Yeah, it kind of raises a point of like, you know, according to textbooks, if you send signal one and don't send signal two, then the T cell's not supposed to be activated and divide. And yet, um, with the state of the art of the single agent T cell engaging by specific that we have, um, that seems like we're overcoming that somehow. And is it these cryptic second signals getting sent? Is it because the target density is so high on the cells? Uh, of the targets that we've chosen because they're the ones that worked. Um, it's sending some sort of an unnatural super signal one. Uh, I think a lot of that isn't understood. If anyone has more understanding of it, I would be really glad uh, to hear guesses, <laughs> evidence, whatever you got. No, but at least I would like to deposit that that very important comparison will be the comparison of CAR-Ts with bispecifics. It's very important. And again, if we look at the issue of cytokine storm, there was a paper published a couple of days ago in the New England Journal of Medicine with really spectacular results in the neuroblastoma setting with anti-GD2 CAR-Ts with high proportion of patients with complete responses, but yet almost all patients had a cytokine storm. And I, I think... These are really promising platforms. It would be so important to, to, to really run them one against the other, also because the, the principles are very similar. I mean, certainly I have the opinion that um, everything that we're doing now to deliberately send a signal to uh, with, with bispecific T-cell engagers, we're sort of a victim of our own initial success uh, that we didn't need to send a signal to and that... Uh, the, the folks that are in the CAR-T field were kind of lucky that it didn't work. Uh, and so <laughs> they could move on to something that was more efficacious uh, faster because they needed, they needed to. All right, do we have any other, any new topics from the audience? Anything that, yeah, or, or, or from the panel. About, sorry, ask some questions. I think they, what's an interesting point though is with the comparison with CAR-Ts and CD3 engaged by specifics, for example, whether there's different considerations when you choose an antigen or whether, like, if it's a good antigen for one, is it a good antigen for the other? It'd be interesting to hear people's perspectives on that. Sorry, I realise I'm meant to be answering the questions, not asking. I'm going to kind of break the rules. That's all right. I mean, I, I said to a, to a few people here that there are plenty of people in the audience that could be up here, but then we might not have an audience and it would be a really big panel. But let's let's just effectively do that, right? Yeah. It's a very oddly shaped table. So. 
Um, yeah, does anybody have thoughts about that? I mean, I, you know, there's the CAR-T versus bispecific, which is better kind of question, which is a, a false question in order to create discussion. Um, but uh, I think as Michelle has put it, um, are there are there are there target preference differences that we should be thinking about? And you can extend the question to anything that's genome targeted, right? Agencies, etc. Um, yeah, you know what what really it, it, does, does a certain feature drive that, or is it just really about safety profiles needing to be maybe cleaner with one and the other, etc. Well, we've gotten Jonathan up out of his seat, so he must be making progress. Yeah, so I, this is, I, I, I don't have an answer. I just have a follow-up question. <laughs> Based on my, uh, on my naive... Is someone taking my, notes, I hope. <laughs> my, my, my naive understanding from like looking at some reviews with really, really pretty microscopic pictures in them. Uh, but my understanding is that the synapse that you're trying to form is actually quite tight. And uh, when they look at where various of the molecules involved in creating the synapse are, the big ones are more outside. They're not right up against in the middle. I don't know how accurate all of this is, but if that's true, would the size of the, the target matter? Would we not want to target something that is really big because it will just basically not let the two cells get close enough? I guess you answered your question. It's probably not just which target, it's which epitope on that target as well. Right. Well, no, my question is, we all know, okay, epitope should be close to the membrane, fine. But if you're targeting something that's really big, is that going to simply not allow the correct physics to happen, the correct, correct geometries to happen? And should we be thinking, you know, small targets might be, or smaller medium sizes better? I'm just going to directly say that like, I have a counter example of buck 16, a target that's bigger than buck 16, and practical, and we certainly do see that you see both frequently, but you know, some of the threats. Now, whether or not it would be bigger, it's smaller, don't know, but it's really tough. It's really tough. Are you finding you? Well, we're buying it. We're buying it. What's the actual itself? What fraction of this? And if I may briefly comment on this topic, I mean, there is the issue of the size of the target, but if we think broadly, there is also the issue of the size of the molecule. Because even though this is an antibody meeting, but, you know, antibodies and small molecules are getting much closer together. Technologies like DNA-encoded chemical libraries, they facilitate the discovery of small organic molecules that bind with exquisite affinity to proteins. And therefore, you know, I think a lot of the learnings that we learn with antibodies can be translated to, to actually small molecules and small molecules by specific. There was the reference previously, for example, to toll-like receptor agonists. I would argue it's probably easier to deliver toll-like receptor agonists with small molecules rather than with antibodies. Those antibody conjugates, by the way, are immunogenic to the best of my knowledge. And so I think a lot of the things that we learn with antibodies at some stage we will have to ask, are we better positioned to do it with proteins or are we better positioned to do it with small molecules? Or, say, with peptides. or peptides, okay. That, 
smaller molecules. Smaller, yeah. yeah. I, I guess I would I would say I'm not sure some targets are better than others for CAR T versus bispecifics, but I think you, with either modality, you may have to work less or more to get a target to work. Because I, I know there's there's publications out there that the CAR T's certain types of them can have way higher sensitivity for low density targets. Mm. Uh, and so that's, that's a very serious consideration for therapeutic index because, you know, just remember all of our TAAs are tumor associated antigens, not tumor specific antigens. Um, so th I, I think that's a pretty big consideration. And there's also like tonic signaling considerations for, for CAR T's and, and so forth. So I think it, it kind of, I think all the targets are on the table but how hard you have to work to to make it to to generate a therapeutic index is probably very different. Yeah, I mean, I think as we as more and more people go after solid tumor targets, we'll begin to see what the rules are. Um, there are plenty of papers looking at distance from the membrane, right? And so I think everybody knows that membrane proximal. Try to draw things as close as as close as you can. Coming back to Jonathan's question and, and Eric's uh, somewhat rebuttal or his contribution to the discussion um, about whether there's such a thing as something that's too big. I don't, I don't have any data. I can, I'm just going to speculate. I'll warn you in advance. But um, uh, I mean, I know that in order to make a good T-cell synapse, um, certain large factors are excluded from that synapse, right, in order to get a good T-cell activation. Um, so it may not be, we maybe don't need to think in terms of size, like uh, in terms of kilodaltons, but really in terms of the shape that it can, can form. And is it, is it tall enough, maybe? Um, because I, when I think about, you know, mucks and all of their huge strings of glycosylation with like, you know, 500 repeats of something that's, you know, it's just, you can have thousands of sugars on there, but can those all kind of squish down and lie flat? Um, so that's, uh, maybe we should try targeting just as a thought experiment, not a thought experiment, a proof of concept, try targeting some of the negative inhibitory factors that are squeezed out of the T-cell synapse and see if, you know, that's, that creates a no-go kind of situation. And often they're having the antibodies themselves are not fixed, right, in the structure. That's right. That's so right. Assuming that everything looks like it does on draw on paper, but in reality, you've got a lot of dynamics going on there. And actually, it's maybe it's where things like co-crystallizing molecules and understanding really what happens could, you know, maybe some of that structural biology could play in here. If, if I could say one thing too, I think uh, you're referring to the kinetic segregation model by Anton Vandemer, where they look at all the different receptors that are in the immune synapse and CD45, the phosphatase gets pushed out because it's big and you keep CD2 and all these other much smaller receptors in the classical immune synapse. What's interesting about CAR-T is you don't have a T-cell receptor, right? And so if you look at immune synapse, it's very different for CAR-Ts versus what it is for a natural TCR-NHC uh, interaction. And bispecifics often show a similar synapse to what we get with with uh, MHC and TCR interactions, but you can imagine that it could be a fluid thing that we don't always understand with the molecules that we're using. I, I can think back to a result where we had an uh, alpha-beta integrin, and we had a number of binders to that uh, that bound all up and down. Uh, same exact affinities. We just like really 
concrete study, and we could see some that were spectacular, uh, spectacular you know, T cell engagers, and others that did absolutely nothing. And so, it's a. It doesn't have to be a, like a, a firm rule that you have to be exactly. I think what that immune synapse is. It's a mystery. Yeah, yeah. But, but is, is there a fact that the TCR always in the complex when you're doing cell engagement? Yeah, but I don't think you have to. With the with the bites, you think that it is. Um, mm -hmm. The question is, I don't know what the rules are around forming a perfect <clears throat> synapse and whether that you know the natural rules for forming a. Uh, a synapse are exactly the same for a bispecific or not. I haven't seen enough data around that. It may not be the same. I mean, it probably isn't the same synapse, right? So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's some papers that have looked at what appears, I mean, a lot of it is, it looks like a synapse, you know, by, by microscopy, so therefore it must be a synapse, right? It's yeah. sort of a lot of different things that they figured out there. Yeah, Bill's... Real studies in the real level of detail that we might... Yeah. Bill Stroll was kind of has been freelancing now, and he wrote a really beautiful review around all of this, trying to gather as much data as possible, you know, in the literature around this exact topic. It's worth a read. Shelley, I think I will go back to the epitope question uh, with immune cell engagers. So I think there's been a lot of good data about membrane proximal epitopes and CD3 engagers. Kind of wondering what folks are seeing with costum receptors. Like, is the membrane proximal versus distal quite as important of a factor for selecting those epitopes? Is there anything anyone can say? Uh, all those CD28s I showed yesterday on that list, um, most of those were just yanking antibodies out of the patent literature. Uh, some more antibodies work better than others, but we didn't. We haven't gone to the step of looking to see, oh, is this one proximal or distal or has anybody worked out whether uh, you can make a CD28 or CD137 agonistic antibody that doesn't block the natural ligand? Oh, or if we many of them do. About half of them don't. Half of them don't. Half of them, don't. Least, half of them do. Yeah. yeah. And actually, uh, you know, it's interesting, like John said, it's, I don't think when you start playing with transactivation or cisactivation as opposed to the uh, an antibody coming in and trying to agonize, the rules are different between the different modalities of what you're trying to do. I think we we have a cis-targeted PD-1-4-1-BB because they get co-expressed in the tumor microenvironment, and we had a bispecific that's being developed by Innovent ultimately. And it, uh, yeah, I think we put almost any 4-1-BB or antibody on the, you know, targeted with PD-1, and we could see some agonist activity you know, domain one all the way down to domain four. Even for the domain four, where the antibodies did absolutely nothing, you could titrate them as high as you want, and they were, they were just inert. But once you moved over into the cis format, you could start to see some interesting things happening. And you proved that that's cis. You know, you don't know if it's trans. We got both. Yeah. But the cis was really powerful. Yeah. We had assays for both. Yeah, and the same rules may not apply for CD28 family members and. 41BB uh, super family receptors. Just more of a comment, uh, you know, on the discussion of, you know, like rules about synapse distance and that kind of thing. You know, it always kind of, uh, these discussions always call to my mind a paper that I read a while ago. And I apologize, I don't remember who the authors were on it, but it was this correlated imaging study 
right, where they were looking at, at T-cell synapses, at immune synapses with a combination of high-resolution fluorescence microscopy with, with, uh, with EM as well. So they were able to look at, you know, like, you know, like, like, uh, you know, co-localization of CD45 and like where that is traveling in, in the synapse, you know, correlated with the actual kind of like cultural structure of the, of the, the synapse and looking at just what is happening in this thing. And it was just amazing, like how much structure there is like in the synapse, you know, it's not just like a thin little membrane, you know, kind of like a synapse, you know, two little membranes like kind of coming together, you know, but it's a really, this had all these like invaginations and exosomes like, traveling, you know, they, they, they found exosomes that were like actually loaded with, with T-cell receptor complexes, like things like this. So I mean, this is a really complex dynamic kind of environment. So like how this kind of plays into any sort of rules that we're finding out, you know, it, it, it makes me think that, you know, like there, there really are no rules, you know, like I think you just have to like try stuff and see if it works, you know, and it's really just kind of experiential at this, at this point. It's, it's interesting what you say as well, right, because we all draw these things as two arcs, don't we, on a piece of paper, and actually it's kind of quite like this, and I wonder whether some types of molecules are better at initiating that, like if you've got longer arms, you can catch the two cells and pull them together, and then maybe some are better at maintaining it. Yeah, just, that's a good point. Just too, the yeah. thought that could be pros and cons to different Absolutely, yeah. Biology is very squishy, yeah. you know, and uh, I think that's... That's a really yeah. good point. I've actually wondered, Michelle, on that point, if um, some of the 2 plus 1 uh, by specific formats that we see, uh, like the cross map, for instance, mm -hmm. we can pick on that one. Um, because you have a yeah. you have a tight and then you have a long, right? Mm -hmm. So maybe one is kind of recruitment and one is... Yeah. One is getting that distance just right, like a fab arm distance and so apart. Dual TIA approaches or like a kind of bipolar topic approach could, could be a way to go and then balancing length with affinity and epitope as well. It's mm -hmm. very complicated, yeah. but yeah. yeah, it could well be there's different pros and cons of different approaches. And it might be there's different immunological contexts where one suits the other. So if you've already got a synapse formed, it might be hard to get in there if you're big. But if you haven't got one, you want to make one. Right? Yeah, yeah, no, I definitely agree agree with that for sure, and kind of goes goes with some of our our, our observations as well as some of our two plus one formats that we've been developing too. So, yeah, thanks. And I think Mark Davis published for decades ago showed that it's not an all or nothing fact, right? Mm -hmm. That you get some, you know, that when the synapse starts forming, you get granzyme release and things like that happening, and then when you get the full bullseye in a mature synapse, that's when you get a lot of the cytokine happening, and so you know, it's not an all or nothing event either, right? Some of that happens in stages. And, and I think what we saw with some of the early, or some of the bispecifics were with the attenuated affinity, you know, you probably were not forming a complete mature synapse, but it was just enough to get some of that granzyme action, but maybe not enough to get the full, you know, cytokine release. So it's, it's complex. And I think back to the question of targets too, um, CD22 is interesting because for those who have tried to do bispecifics to CD22, it's, you know, it's the rigidity of the target also because that is like, it's a very rigid stalk that comes off the cell surface. And that one just kind of in past experience, you know, way different than say like BCMA where, you know, anything you get to BCMA just works, right? Because it's a very small ECD, but, you know, something like CD22, it's, um, you know, because of the rigidity of it, I think not even the size, but just the fact that it's so rigid. So I have a question about prioritization of parameters. It seems that there are, there's a lot of discussion around forming the right immune synapse and the right kind of formats and targets to, to make that work well, uh, as well as some discussion around biodistribution and tumor physiology. And maybe this is a very naive question, but I'm wondering if folks have an opinion on what are the more important things to get right uh, 
and I guess I ask because it seems like there's a lot of really interesting clinical data for a variety of different kinds of formats. And so I don't know, maybe the most important thing is actually the tumor or the biodistribution and not the synapse. I'm just wondering. Okay. If I may start on this topic, I think largely it will also depend on the disease. I make an example. We say immunological, sorry, hematological tumors are easier. But think of AML. AML is the challenge in hemato-oncology. And there, for example, the problem is clearly spelled. We have problems distinguishing between blasts and uh, stem cells. So that would be an example which is chemically very well defined. Maybe again with multi-specifics, uh, with combinatorial specificity, we will get there. But I think that would be an example where the, the identity of the recognition module will probably differentiate between success and failure. At least that's my opinion. Mm -hmm. I think the AML is an interesting place. I'd like to see some progress in AML. You know, I, I was talking to Werner. I was encouraged by the gamma delta T cell data that Innate Bio is coming out with um, because they don't have MHC. You know, they don't bind MHC class one or two. It's just a very chemical moiety, right? The, the stress moiety that's on the uh, on the inside of the cell that causes that conformational change in the butyrins and uh, and the other seeing some pretty interesting responses in their initial in their initial trials. Published a paper in Science Translational Medicine about ten years ago with targeted delivery of interleukin two that was giving complete responses in last last line AML patients. So it could be again that you have stress proteins expressed on the blasts, and again, mm -hmm. natural killer cells, for example, are very good at recognizing those stress products. Right. And gamma delta T cells respond oh, really well. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, um, I guess, just a little over 10 minutes from the beginning of the next talk, so let's see if we can begin to wrap this up, uh, which was, uh, yeah, a really interesting discussion, we kind of you know, started out with some of the, um, the concepts uh, in, the, in the title of the panel about, you know, engineering strategies, but went, you know, quickly to the architecture of the solid tumor and difficulty getting things to the right places in the solid tumor and um, continued on uh, into the actual uh, interactions that we need to have between a T cell and a, and a target cell. Um, so maybe we can kind of bring it back out. Uh, if uh, any of the panelists have like sort of a final, to, you know, what what would what should we take away from this discussion? Um, I would uh, really be pleased to hear from each of you on that. Well, my short summaries, I think, by specifics are at the stage where you know they're one of the most exciting modalities. And I think, above all, it's the time for comparing them with other modalities, namely cytokine fusions, CAR-Ts, and drug conjugates. I think really comparing these modalities is, is possible now. Compare and combine. And combine, yeah. yeah. And probably collaborate as well. That was a point that was made, is what can we learn and, and where can we you know, bring those things together? I think also what I've learn is it's, it's complicated and as we learn more we will make it more complicated but I think it's focusing in on really what's what you're trying to achieve and then how do you design the molecule to do that and I think we've we've got so many cool tools now right there's so much more you can do with engineering so 
I think you know it's a very exciting time to see how all this stuff plays out. I'll just say I was really impressed with all the talks in the session so far. Um, you know, all the clinical hypotheses that are being addressed and then going back preclinically like you did and then using preclinical mm -hmm. data to help inform clinical data once your molecules are there is super powerful stuff. And it's nice to see that happening now with bispecifics. You know, people were doing that with mm -hmm. antibodies for a long time, but to see it now happening with with compatible immune mechanisms uh, to achieve, you know, getting basically kind of like a synthetic car <laughs> where, you, where you make these combinations, you can potentially tinker with dosing, with timing, all of these things to maximize your efficacy. Uh, I think there are still many exciting times ahead. I look forward to some listening to some new target discussions. I wonder if there are some new targets, you know, that are out there that people that are five years behind where CD28 was. You know, now that we've gotten so much progress on CD28, what's happening with CD2, other, you know, molecules, and we're starting to learn some more biology about mm -hmm. uh, CD69, other interesting, you know, molecules on the surface. So hopefully there's still a lot to discover and new mechanisms to, to start, you know, for innovative people to start tinkering with. All right. Well, I'd like to thank the panelists. And also very much thank the audience <laughs> for great participation and uh, thank the organizers. So uh, I think we can break the panel at this time uh, and have uh, about 10 minutes before we go into the next two talks uh, as we have been up here for an hour. So.